Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for what is now episode number 75. So today we have a very special episode for you. Tierra and I regularly get asked questions about physiotherapy that we're not quite qualified to answer. So we thought, who better than Scott Micklejohn to come onto the podcast and answer some of your questions. So before we get uh, into some of the listener questions, we just wanted to learn a bit more about Scott before we get started. So Scott, can you please tell us a bit more about yourself? Well, hey guys, thanks for letting me come on today. Um, I'll give a little bit of background about myself. Um, I'm not very good at uh, talking about myself, so I'll try my best uh, in that regards. But uh, so I've been a physio for about eight years now. Um, I graduated at uh, the University of Queensland. In terms of work history, I've been primarily just in the private practice field, so mostly dealing with what people would expect a physio to deal with, so musculoskeletal related injuries. Um, as I've sort of my time's gone on, I've sort of started to steer more and towards the strength sports in particular. But otherwise, you know, like any other physio, we have a pretty broad spectrum of client base as well. You know, um, you can't exclusively see athletes, um, although that's definitely where sort of my interest would would lie um, in regards to that. Awesome. And so you've been practicing for about eight years now. And as far as I know, you're the founder of Effectus Physio. Like when, how did that come to play, come into part? Well, I, um, I, I was originally working in, in a few of other practices on the north side of Brisbane, your sort of standard uh, physio clinic. Um, and I just sort of got quite frustrated, I think, with the model that was sort of being rolled out. And for a while there, it sort of made me not want to be a physio. Um, I was getting fairly disenfranchised with sort of the industry itself, um, mainly because we were sort of stuck in a, a bit of a loop. And I think some people can relate to this. It was, it was you'd come in, you'd have a 30-minute window with a client, which is often barely enough to sort of scrape that surface of, of what the problem is. Um, I wouldn't really have access to any gear as such. You know, there'd be a, a couple of pink dumbbells in a corner, um, and an exercise ball and, you know, a few little bits and bobs, um, you know, so I have these clients come in and I really couldn't actually either A, assess them properly or, or B, give them what the evidence is showing, which is more towards the exercise and strength training um, element. So I just sort of started getting quite annoyed with, with what the options were. Um, and then I decided, you know, the only way to sort of change that is to, to do something for myself. Uh, which is where I came up with my idea of instead of having more of a clinic-style setting, it's more of a gym setting with with a few additional rooms. So mm. that's sort of what the idea of Effectus was was sort of created out of, is to try and make it more of a uh, evidence-based practice. And um, it's taken a few years to get there, but I think we've sort of got a fairly successful-looking uh, clinic now, which is nice. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a great facility compared to the other. I've attended quite a few physios in my injury-prone lifetime, but so you've seen a few pink dumbbells. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure you yeah. have. Yeah, <laughs> like one because for the listeners who don't know, I've been seeing Scott for about two years now, and there is always in like a a very generous amount of time that we can actually discuss things, and he can tell me what to do, which is quite different to a lot of the other practices where they try and get you in and out as fast as possible, a bit like a GP, and yeah, so. Before we get into the questions, like you mentioned that 
you do dabble in a bit of strength training yourself. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I, um, I've always played a lot of sports uh, my entire life, but um, I, I got into the gym probably in my early 20s, um, very much actually just into bodybuilding. Um, I, I never really had any interest to, to compete or anything, but I, I, I got into it through like probably a lot of people, like your classic bodybuilding era uh, videos um, got me sort of hooked into that. And then uh, the longer I went through that, I started getting more and more into strength training. So these days... Um, I compete in powerlifting um, in the uh, APU, which is like the IPF affiliate in Australia. Um, and, and yeah, I've been competing there for about three years. Awesome. Cool. So we'll get into the first question, which is quite a broad one, just saying like, what is physiotherapy in general? And I think this will be a useful one because we, about half of our listeners are from the US. And as far as I know, physio, like it's more so maybe chiro there or massage therapy from the people I've talked to, physiotherapy isn't quite as substantial as it is here. No, it's a, um, it's, it's a different delineation in America, uh, Canada, it's a little bit more similar uh the physio role there is is a lot closer aligned to here but um in australia we definitely get a lot more um autonomy in terms of diagnostics so we get given a lot more ability to be able to actually diagnose and uh, on an official level you know that you might be able to do that in america if you have a if you have a good chiro or a good physical therapist um but my understanding is that role is shifted more towards the medical element um mm-hmm. whereas in australia the Physio has a little bit more of a priority in that sphere, um, and then that's accompanied with more of the sort of exercise physiologist. Um, but in terms of what exactly a physio is, those those lines are starting to get more and more blurred, which I actually think is a good thing um, mm-hmm. because instead of sort of focusing on what qualifications someone has, we're looking at more of the evidence, like what is that person actually doing for you rather than are you seeing, you know, a masseuse or a chiro or a physio or an EP or whatever it is. But generally speaking, a, a physio's prime role is to just restore someone's function. So if you okay. evidence-based practice to restore their function, I think that's the key sort of delineation between mm-hmm. those roles. But what you will tend to find, though, is that I get a, a similar question, not so much what physio is but what's the difference between a physio and say an exercise physiologist or a physio and a chiro or something like that and it's a pretty good question um Mm -hmm. because ultimately if you guys are doing a good job there should be a fair bit of blurring between those lines um the more i think about it and, and it just sort of ends up being this case is that physios will be more in that earlier phase diagnostics um, and your and your EPs will be more in the later stage of rehab. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of crossover, though. You know, some people want to specialize in either or, but generally speaking, that's what you're going to find in those different. Yeah, and so yeah, touching on like the EP part of that, like at least from when I see you, like there still is a lot of like almost all of our a lot of it is still the EP sort of stuff where you give me the strengthening exercises. So is that kind of the crossover? Yeah, and I think you know the more that we're focusing as a um, as a profession on evidence, um, the more you're finding really that you should just see a spectrum or a continuum of treatment. You know, let's say someone has a ACL reconstruction, if they see a physio or an EP, it really shouldn't change what they do. You know, you might have individual exercises that look different, 
But realistically, that that evidence should be able to show the same continuum of care through the whole spectrum. Um, what you'll tend to find is that the physios seem to specialise more in the earlier stage and your EPs more towards that later stage return to sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's also where you tend to find, to find, like, say, an exercise scientist being at the, the very end, more towards that performance-based uh, component. Um, but that's the way I sort of think about it is just a continuum and where you align yourself on that continuum. Okay. Makes as sense. A physio, oh, sorry, just to add to that, as a physio, you do tend to get a bit more training around the diagnostic components mm-hmm. than an EP does and yeah. vice versa. They'll spend a bit more time on the exercise components, but it's becoming more of a case of what the individual wants to specialise in. Mm. And I think that ties really nicely, Scott, into this next question, which is, in what instances would you recommend working with a physio? Well, I think if you, I guess there's a there's a few instances, but let's say, obviously, if you have an injury, it's probably your first uh, off the bat. Um, but I, I would also tie this in with EPs as well. So um, if you have an injury um, or if you're looking to just improve your function or improve your performance in something, um, and then a caveat to that being if you're looking to maintain performance in that area so if you're looking to get advice about something that you might know a fair bit about but it's not your specialty um so say jack for instance jack knows a lot about exercise um but he's coming to see me about particular intricacies um and vice versa i'm not gonna go and give someone dietitian advice i'm gonna recommend them to come and see you guys so i think it's about um any of those areas either an injury function or even prevention Awesome. And I have a slightly controversial question maybe that ties more into the like the sports massage region. So yeah. and it might apply to the listeners. So I hear a lot of people say, okay, I've got some pain in my elbow or I pulled a muscle. I'm just going to head to the to the massage therapist and, and he'll fix it up for me. Like what's your take on that scenario? I think <clears throat> so. Yeah, it is a controversial one. So uh, I had a little think about how I was going to frame my answer to a question like this before <laughs> I came on, um, because uh, I think there's two ways to look at it. You, if, if you're going to look at the research and say what evidence is there to support getting that hands-on treatment, you're not going to find much. Like that's just the fact. You're not going to find a bunch of studies that show doing like having a massage improves injury recovery or reduces DOMS, for instance, or, or any of those variables. In saying that, though, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any value. I think if, for instance, if you feel better after having a massage, that in of itself has benefits, whether that be psychological or physiological. The two are married, so you're going to have a better performance if you feel better. So I think there is value to it. Um, I just couldn't go and recommend to someone you should unequivocally get a massage. Um, Mm -hmm. But like I myself... If I, I go and get massages from time to time, so because it feels good, um, I tend to feel like I have better range of motion afterwards. Now, whether that's psychological or not, maybe, maybe not. But I, I think it doesn't particularly matter. I think mm-hmm. we should probably focus maybe less on what you're physically changing and more on maybe how you feel about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. That way, you can still have some value to it, you know. And I still recommend, like. As I said, I still go and get a massage. You know? So mm. it yeah. has its benefits. I just think 
you need to be careful about, yeah, what how much power you give it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a wonderful answer. And there's absolutely no denying that getting a massage feels freaking good and can be very relaxing, yeah. right? And I've always yeah. been so jealous of these people, you know, when you read these studies where it's like a 12-week study, they did resistance training five times a week. And after each resistance training session, they got an hour massage. And I'm like, man, I wish I enrolled myself in that study. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That'd be lovely. Um, I think what's probably happening um, with a lot of those benefits that you feel is it's likely a neurological change. So mm -hmm. that hands-on stimulus is likely reducing the activity in the muscle, albeit for a temporary period, but you're then getting that relaxation because the muscles aren't firing to the same degree. Um, but you're probably not going to get like this structural change. Um, however, that, that can have its benefits too. You know, like if if you are getting pain because muscles are really tight and you go in and have a massage and you feel better and that means you'll then exercise more well isn't that a tangible benefit as well um mm -hmm. so i think the two can be married i just think you need to understand the value of, of where it sits yeah yeah makes sense so before we get into some of the juicier questions we just wanted to say like as we do in a lot of our nutrition related podcasts that these uh, a lot of these maybe a bit more individual specific and just like nutrition, we can't really give a in-depth answer to that individual because Scott hasn't done any screening for those individuals. He doesn't know your past injury history. He doesn't know any, any of that. So these are just kind of his first thoughts. And if you want more detail about them, just book a um, consultation with Scott or another physio. So yeah, we just thought we would disclaim with that to start. So the first question says, so many gym goers are susceptible to lower back pain. Why are these injuries so prevalent and what are some of the preventative measures that people can take? Well, thank you for um, putting in that caveat at the start so I don't incriminate myself with any answers. Uh, but, oh, yeah, I'll give my, my thoughts on, obviously, uh, these questions as, as general uh, as possible, but hopefully some actual pragmatic um, elements to it as well. So... Being susceptible to lower back pain in the gym, I think the the primary thing you'd be looking at in that situation is load management. So what are we talking about when you look at your program? Most people, let's say a novice, because this is probably more tailored towards your novice and intermediate lifters, is tracking what they're actually doing. Um, what you're probably going to find is that they're doing way too much work on those body parts compared to other areas. Um, there's obviously some technique elements involved in that. Like it's very easy to change how much load you have on your lower back by doing different technical parts to some of those compound lifts, like deadlifting, like squatting. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to injure those body parts, but it's easy to put more load on them quite, quite simplistically. So if you marry that with the fact that most novice lifters don't really track what they do in the gym, you know, it's just going work as hard as I can and do that as regularly as I can. You can see how that married with an area that's going to be overloaded more can probably result in that, that lower back pain. Because I don't think it's necessarily that people have weaker lower backs proportionate. You know, if, if you haven't gone to the gym, you don't have a history of any injuries, you're not really at a higher risk of hurting that lower back. So I think it's probably more coming from the fact that people aren't tracking what they're doing. And then they're also more likely to load their lower back. Like we've had a discussion with Jack in his programming on a similar thing is that 
<clears throat> often people only think about um, the direct load on the lower back, not the incidental load. So say deadlifting is a direct load on your lower back, but a pen lay row or a bent over row also has load on the lower back. So those little elements are very easily overlooked, I think, and that's why you end up in a situation, I think, where people hurt themselves more in those areas. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great response. So basically your maybe number one recommendation or just a primary recommendation would be just to look at that total volume that you're uh, using on your back. Yeah, absolutely. Look at the, the frequency and the layout of your working week. You know, let's say, for instance, you go a leg session, a back session, or, or you do like, say, a push-pull split and a, and a lower body split. Well, on that push-pull split, if you've got, you know, six working sets of bent over rows, you know, and that's happening on those two sessions plus two leg sessions, well, now you've got four sessions a week of lower back training. So I think just straight off the bat would be looking at how often you're actually training. Are you tracking what you're training? Um and often you'll see those patterns emerge if you're actually taking a look at it. Um, the second element is if you if you do that and you think you're you're tracking it quite well, well, go and get some technical advice because there could be a little cue that you're missing, something like that as well. And from your from your experience, you know, working with athletes who might be following programs of this sort, would your general recommendation to be to reduce the number of days the lower back is loaded so maybe reduce it from four down to three or would you potentially just reduce the volume in each workout but continue to load it four times per week it's a good question um, i think most studies will look at the overall weekly volume mm -hmm. so it's hard to say on that like that question yeah do because you could do it either way and you could still end up with the same amount of total volume you know mm -hmm. over that time period this is more of an anecdotal experience i tend to find you need more actual rest days that's mm -hmm. my more experience particularly if you're pushing the body at a higher rpe you know if i'm running two sets at rpe eight almost every day it's never really getting any sort of time to recover whereas if i reduce that into say two harder sessions per week and had multiple days off i think you, you got a more likelihood of of recovering but that's that answer is probably more of an anecdotal experience yeah. myself um, from trying to split leg sessions or trying to split upper body sessions and then having that fatigue carry through um, because then on that day that you're training the extra volume it sort of cuts out your ability for, for active recovery and stuff like that so that's that's more of my experience yeah mm -hmm. i think that makes a lot of sense yeah for sure so these next two questions are actually asked by a physiotherapy student. So he's he's um, put in some fancy words like spine flexion. <laughs> so yeah. the first question is, is butt winking, lumbar spine flexion, etc., always a bad thing during squats? Uh, no, it's not always a bad thing. Like it's another similar argument to do with your evidence base. There is limitations on evidence base. So, you know, we do want to obviously follow the current evidence but it's going to be pretty hard to structure studies around following butt link and whether or not you're going to get an injury so at the moment there's not a lot of data to suggest that spinal flexion like that is unequivocally going to get injured so part of that answer would be no it's not bad but but i would say i would want to come back and ask yourself why are you butt winking that would be the biggest question for me 
Um, let's say if you're an Olympic weightlifter and you want to try and get that extra range of motion, motion to bottom out a squat, well, you're probably going to butt wink at the base. But if you're a novice lifter and you're learning to lift and you're butt winking because you just have no awareness of your body, then maybe that's not the most ideal situation because we do know that a butt wink is going to shift load, if that makes sense. So you might be getting more working volume on the lower back. Now, that doesn't mean you'll definitely get injured at all, but you could see, like let's take a squat, for instance. If you're shifting that load into your lower back instead of working it through your legs and you're doing that in a bunch of other areas where you could be potentially accumulating more volume in the lower back, again, it's not necessarily going to lead to injury, but it stems back to that question, like, why are you butt winking? Is there a benefit to that butt wink? Um, I tend to think that there isn't much of a benefit. So I'm almost always going to teach someone to not butt wink because the costs are not going to, the costs are going to outweigh the benefits. I'm not going to see a great deal of benefit from butt winking unless it's specific to your sport, like in a, like an ollie lifting or something like that. Um, so most of the time I'm going to teach them to try and do a neutral spine because in my experience, they're probably butt winking more due to not being able to control themselves or move very well, mm-hmm. which is why I would usually go against it. So it's that fight between what your evidence is saying and then the actual pragmatic application of that evidence. Yeah. And in terms of like the spinal flexion, because like for those who don't know, spinal flexion is basically like the, the curvature of the spine. So bending over, for example, and because like most people do associate that with like maybe like disc injuries because it exposes the discs. Like, is that actually like how it works physiologically or? Uh, yes and no. Like there is studies that show that that position increases the pressure in your discs. And there is studies that link repetitive flexion movements in workplace environments with potential increases in injuries. But just because a study shows that you have increased pressure in that area doesn't mean it's going to cause an injury in that area, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But we've often tied that data to, oh, okay, that means you'll definitely get injured. Um, again, it, for me, it, it doesn't mean you will. Like the body is quite resilient. You'll tolerate that load. And most likely if you slowly increase your exposure to that position, you won't get injured. However, I would come back to the, the, the question of why are you doing that? I think a deadlift is a really good of that because let's say you're loading up a heavy deadlift and you're trying to yank it off the floor and you start in a neutral position, but then before it breaks the floor, everything curls up and you're rounding your lower back and you're pulling it off the floor with your lower back. Well, you're pretty much just using your lower back to yank that off the floor. Mm. Whereas in reality, if we want to make that more of an efficient movement pattern, we want to try and recruit your glutes, hamstrings, quads to drive, you know, make it a whole body exercise. So my argument would still come back to that, like why is that occurring to do that movement as opposed to is it going to make me get injured? I think anecdotally, if someone keeps yanking a bar off the floor like that, there is a good chance that they're going to get sore and hurt themselves. Um, So I think, yeah, stem that back to why am I doing it and, why is my lower back rounding positions? Um, like let's take powerlifting or say uh, strongman, for instance. There is some situations where it might be more mechanically advantaged to those people to round their lower back when they lift. Mm. But that's a really sort of sport-specific 
situation. Your average lifter is probably doing a deadlift so they can get stronger glutes and bigger hamstrings. So if you're yanking it with your back, you're not really getting that the purpose that you're sort of trying to derive it from. Mm. Yeah. And this this next question ties in quite nicely with that because we know that a lot of people who perform these compound movements like squats and deadlifts, they will often wear a lifting belt. But we're just wondering, can you please outline for the listeners what is the role of a lifting belt and is it necessary for everyone who's perhaps doing a squat or a deadlift to actually use one? So... I'll answer the second part first. It's definitely not necessary, particularly if your goal is, like if you're more of a novice or intermediate lifter, it's definitely not necessary at all. The, the idea behind the belt is that by putting that pressure around your midline, it helps you to pressure within your abdominal region. That's referred to as your intra-abdominal pressure. Um, and if you think about your midsection as a cylinder, your back being the back of the cylinder, your abdominals being the other side, you're going to create, try and create like an actual ring or a full structure where you're going to increase the pressure in that sphere. So often you'll see people wearing a, a belt will breathe deeply in and hold their breath before they lift. And that idea is by creating that pressure in your trunk, it's going to keep a stable and still lower back position. Now that does work if you can breathe quite well into a belt um, and you've got some experience with it, but it doesn't always equal that too. I've seen people put a belt on and just push into it and arch their back and completely lose all that pressure that they were trying to create originally. Um, but I've also seen people put a belt on like myself and use that to your advantage because you get a bit of a feeling about where you're holding yourself. So it comes back to that application. Element, you know. If the goal of that belt is to help control where your lower back is sitting and to help engage that pressure we have to use it for that purpose mm -hmm. um, if you just simply put it on and push hard and don't think about it well it's it might actually do the opposite of what you're sort of trying to get out of it um, if you're gonna learn to use a belt it actually feels really weird the first time you go chuck a belt on if you've never used it um, and it can often make you feel different when you move so i would start with it on a lower weight and, and build yourself up um, and vice versa that too if you're just getting into lifting or you're in a fairly fairly early stage of lifting you probably don't need a belt if, if you feel like you need to have one I'd ask the question why you know if, you, if you're just getting into it you should probably just learn to move without anything first before trying to it on. Mm -hmm. and generally from wearing a belt and increasing that intradominal pressure how does that actually translate into increased performance, perhaps for a power lifter and their ability to lift more weight? Now, that's a good question. So if you think about your trunk as being from your hips or base of your hips all the way up to your shoulders, this, this midsection of your trunk, if I'm squatting, I want to be able to transfer the force in my legs through the floor into the bar and coming directly upwards in a vertical position. If there is any kink in the middle of that, if you think about the body as uh, being an actual sort of machine in that sense, if there's a kink or a breaking point in that, that lift pattern, you're going to lose energy and you're going to lose efficiency of movement to actually transfer that weight straight through it. Uh, you actually see studies that show that even with, say, jumping, people who have poor trunk stability and trunk control show a reduction in jump heights 
um, because they're not transferring that energy from the base of the floor directly through themselves. So that's primarily what that, that belt is designed to do is to keep a rigid centre of mass so that I can use my legs to drive straight up. Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, my other question about the belts were, like you see the, the very thick powerlifting belts that like you and I use and you see these other ones which are like really thin at the front and then they have like a wider sort of rectangular bit at the back. Is there actually a difference in which belts are more effective? I think um, if it just becomes intra-abdominal pressure, I don't know if there's a huge difference in effect. I think the goal is for it to try and increase that pressure. So often you'll find that the stronger you get and the more weight you lift, a thicker belt will give you more pressure to push against. Whereas often that thin sort of Velcro belt, something you might see in CrossFit, it only gives you a little bit of pressure. It's not a great deal of support. Um, but if that achieves what you want it for, then it's completely fine. Um, I would say the shape can matter depending on the sport, though. Like a big, thick powerlifting belt will often get in the way at the bottom of a squat. So if you're doing Olympic weightlifting, that's often why you'll see like a thinner section at the back or a wider section at the back because it can pinch into your hips like when you're at the, mm. the base of a squat or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, generally speaking, like you'll – the thicker that belt is, the more pressure it's going to give against you. But your body shape and everything makes a difference. Like I had to drop down a size in my belt because I just don't have a very big torso. So it would routinely jam into my ribs and like start to bruise and give me things like that. So I had to sort of change my belt position and stuff. And, and that definitely happens with a lot of lifters as well. Yeah, I find the same thing because I squat quite deep and it just digs into my hips and i always get bruises after every session as well but yeah. yeah there's a few little tips for that ones like um if you have a lever belt with the uh just the pull i just rotate it across to one like out of the way um and then i also tilt the front higher and keep the back lower so i get okay. it like out of that sort of space yeah um, but yeah it, it can get pretty annoying in this I'll, I'll walk away after a squat session and usually have bruises around the around this section so the the next question is from Cameron, who we know you're familiar with as well. So he says, most common injuries you see in bodybuilders and what you'd suggest to mitigate this early on? Well, I think if you were to compare bodybuilding to other sports, I actually think the injury rate's pretty low. And I, and I do remember reading a study a while back that suggested a similar thing. So I think firstly, bodybuilding probably a pretty good sport from, from that respect. So... On the whole, I would say it's lower than a lot of other sports. However, for that sport, I would say the biggest issue is just asymmetries or muscle imbalances, which I think is funny because it is a sport of symmetry. So, you know, it's sort of it's both the sport and the injury risk. But I, I would say the primary one I see is when people get into it and, and get too fixated on sort of the muscles in the front of their body. Um, because you obviously can't see the muscles at the back as much. So you'll often see that imbalance occur um, where, say, the larger muscle groups, their pecs and their lats, which are large internal rotators, will often dominate their body position, um, whereas the smaller muscles like their external rotators, their posterior delts, um, their thoracic extensors, extensors, so even muscles that just lift their chest, they're often neglected. So that'll tend to lead to niggling shoulder injuries, often neck pain, things like that. 
is a big one. Um, the second one that's probably closest to that would be similar to powerlifting. It's just a neglect of, of trunk control. So we sort of think that we need to do accessory work for other muscle groups, you know, like people squat and deadlift, then they'll go and do hamstring curls. They'll go and do quad work or arm work. But for some reason we tend to think that that's enough for your midsection that I don't need to then go and do accessory ab work. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see that sort of misbalance happen there uh, where people tend to get um, really tight lower backs and just poor, poor trunk control. And when you say ab work, do you mean traditional sit-ups or do you mean like maybe is there a difference between your typical ab work and actual core stability? Yeah, good point. I guess I should frame it more as like a core stability component. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the sit-up either, but if we're talking about like the most typical injuries, I would say it's from yeah underutilization of their their abs. So um, things like sit-ups would be an okay example, but yeah, I would usually more go towards like non-movement beta ex- exercises. So things like uh, planks or variations of planks and mountain leg lifts sort of situations um, okay just because it's focusing on your ability to hold your trunk without it moving if that makes sense but mm-hmm. that's more what i tend to think is is a bit easier from an injury prevention aspect yeah cool and i actually had a question related to this one where let's say someone has i don't know similar to an injury like i'm happy disclosing this because I, yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm on the podcast, but like I've announced on the podcast previously that like I had a hip injury and like, despite hip thrusting a lot of weight, I still had like weak glutes and like, how, what does that actually mean where someone might be able to deadlift or squat a lot yet? They'll still have weak areas that need, is that kind of what you were referring to in terms of they focus on the larger muscles, but not necessarily the smaller ones? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good example where, um, we'll often look at those larger compound movements and forget the accessory versions for those smaller areas. Um, so in, in Jack's case, do you mind me talking about it? No, I don't. Okay. So in Jack's case, you know, very strong glute max. Um, so really strong with your primary movement, squat and deadlifting, but didn't have much lateral stability. So side to side movements. Um, and that's because you're not going to see many bodybuilding type exercises that that focus on that. So when we had a look with Jack, like his ability to control hip abduction or external rotation, so getting that leg away from their body, that was poor comparative to the rest of his strength. So he developed an issue in his hip that was related to that. Um, And that's sort of an example of like your glutes aren't just a single plane muscle. You're not simply looking at – like when they say glutes, it's not one one muscle. In other words, you know, it's multiple muscles in those areas. And and so to be able to keep healthy and strong hips, you need to look at multiple planes of movement in respect to that. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It, it makes a lot more sense when you explain it like that. So cool. We'll move on to the next question, which is how important are pelvic floor exercises for women who lift? Like even from Cher and I, anecdotally, we hear, it's just kind of one of those sayings you hear, like pelvic floor exercises for women. Uh, I think if you – like you need a strong pelvic floor. So that is an important element, absolutely. Uh, and this goes for men as well. Um, 
you need a strong pelvic floor because that is physically going to, that's that's one of the components to creating that intra-abdominal pressure. Think about that as being the base of, of that cylinder. The pelvic floor is a, is a series of muscles in the base of your pelvis um, that are utilized in a lot of just general movements. So it's what you would call like a stabilizing set of muscles. The most common example would be those muscles also control um going to the bathroom, for instance, as well. Uh, but they're also utilized in creating that intra-abdominal pressure. So they act as a floor to that trunk, if that makes sense. But think about those muscles as being at the base of your pelvis. Uh, so in a healthy individual, those muscles are going to kick in when you're lifting without you having to consciously think about it that much. That's the ideal scenario. Um, so often people will be able to train without any problems. They don't need to go and specifically target pelvic floor issues. However, if you do have a history of issues with that, so say a history of back pain where we know that there's a reduction in pelvic floor activity or if you've had children, you know, that that's going to have a disruption to your pelvic floor muscles um, or if you're having continence issues when you're lifting. So it's really common for women to, to urinate when they're deadlifting max, like max weights. Um, if you're having any of those issues, then, yeah, you need to supplement um, pelvic floor exercises. Um, but I wouldn't say it's an absolute necessity. I'll often teach it as part of my bracing routine for people. But that's usually for people who actually are coming to see me with a back problem. So I, I wouldn't worry about it too much unless you tick off one of those boxes I just spoke about. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, that like I it's just pelvic floor is one of those areas you hear spoken about, but you don't really kind of know what it is. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. But the next question says, is asymmetry with movements bad? For example, one foot turned more outwards. Yeah, I saw this question and this is a really good question because it is, it's often the problems that I see in the clinic. Asymmetries in general aren't like unequivocally bad. So you know, it's similar to the other questions we've spoken about. You're not going to find a study that sort of shows uh, when you have one side bigger than the other, you definitely get injured um, because you see a lot of successful lifters and a lot of successful athletes who have muscle imbalances and they're completely fine. They don't get injured. I, though, would I ask the question, though, why is that, again, that why is that imbalance or asymmetry there? Because let's take the example of the foot turnout. When someone comes to see me who is getting a problem, that's often a giveaway of like a weakness in that side or a compensatory pattern because they don't have, say, hip strength on that side. So they're searching for some stability. They're turning that foot out to open their hip up and get an extra bit of pressure through that foot. So that's often a giveaway for me. So when it comes to like my lifters, I will try and search for symmetry. Uh, My goal is to get them back towards as symmetrical as possible, but there's margins for error. You know, no one is going to be perfect with what they're doing. Um, You have to accept that component. um, And whilst I think it's still good to push towards that, accept it if there is some differences um but but often a change is a big giveaway as well when it comes to that so if you were symmetrical with a squat and now all of a sudden you're changing something on one side or if that change is is linked to pain or an injury that's often a giveaway so on its own it's not 
an issue. But if you start to link a few of those variables together, I think it's a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah, especially that change in normality from symmetrical to asymmetrical. So this next question says, is actually biggest tips for student physios. So yeah, we know we have a few listeners at the moment who are currently student physios. Yeah, this is, um, I actually do some tutoring, not at the moment because of the um, corona stuff, but um, I was tutoring at some of the campus stuff at UQ, uh, just with some students at colleges there. And um, I think what I've, if we're talking about, you know, physio students specifically in this context, the course itself is really good at giving you a strong theoretical knowledge. Um, and, and that is the most important component. And it's very good at doing that. It's going to teach you very in-depth anatomy, physiology, um, diagnostic skills. What it lacks, in my experience, is the application to exercise component for physio students. It'll teach you the theory of that, but not necessarily the practical application. So my biggest tip for physio students would be to train yourself. So go and do exercise, whether that's in the gym, whether that's outside the gym, all those different mediums, whether it's HIIT training, CrossFit, whatever. If you're doing that while you're studying, you're going to understand the application of that theory better um, because no one's going to give you like 50 different exercises for glutes at uni. You might know that someone needs to improve, say, their glute med strength, but you're going to get like one example. And we know in reality you need to have a lot of different ways to do the same thing. So you need to understand those regressions and progressions. And I think the, the best way is to go and do that yourself, um, get in the gym and be active. Mm. Yeah, I think like this is a bit of a story actually. And I went to a student physio clinic. I'm not going to say where, but it was a sports student physio clinic. And I was just talking to the student about uh, like why I was there. And I mentioned, oh, I do hip thrusts. And he was like, what's hip thrusts? Like yeah, exactly. you would think. Yeah. <laughs> so that ties in nicely with what you recommended, I think. <laughs> I yeah, so that. like if, that's a really good example from two elements. One is that the patient's coming to you to tell you about something they're doing. You need to know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but secondly, if you ask that student, you know, what is an exercise for glute max strengthening? They probably say hip extension, which is, you know, that is not a wrong answer. But, okay, show me what hip extension is. And they wouldn't know how to show you what that is. Whereas a hip thrust is hip extension. You know, so there's that disconnect between the actual practical application and the theoretical application. So, yeah, go to the gym, do a bunch of stuff, learn what it looks like and what it feels like, and then you have a better understanding. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fantastic recommendation. And I think it could probably tie into any profession, you know, like definitely for dietetics. Yeah, dietetics, like telling a client like, oh, you need some more vitamin A. And they're like, "Okay, which foods can I get that from? And you're like, oh, um, (laughs) I'm going to have to look that up. (laughs) Or um, I imagine as well, just the um, the ability to like what's easy to do, I guess, would be another way. If If you're already in that sphere, you'd understand like some practical elements of how to to diet that that you might not know otherwise Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah especially for a specialty area that we're in like we covered nothing in dietetics that was related to bodybuilding but here we are (laughs) (laughs) yeah like i love your um your morning example of your massive oats 
and all the berries and stuff like that. I always <laughs> look at the breakdown of calories and I go, oh, how am I going to get like, because I need to get like a thousand calories in the morning. And I look mm. at your example. I'm like, that's such an easy way to get, you know, that breakdown of nutrients. Yeah. Thank you. So this question is, uh, well, I've actually asked you this question before in one of our consults, but something like this, if my hips pop or make pop noises with no pain, is that okay or not? And we wanted to quite kind of relate it to like, I don't know, other areas like your knee just might randomly crack when you extend it or elbows, etc. Yeah. Similar with people's shoulders as well. It usually like clicks or pops. Yeah. I think, uh, that really ties in quite well to that, uh, previous question about asymmetry movements. Um, on its own, it's not a problem. So like if you just naturally crack or pop in your knees or in your lower back or whatever, if there's no pain tied to it, you've always done it. I really wouldn't be concerned at all about it. Uh, there's no evidence to link those noises to problems. In saying that there is particular injuries that will give off similar, um, similar findings but you really have to have like an evidence trail that's a very small piece of that puzzle so if you just have that simple i really wouldn't be concerned okay yeah makes sense and i remember like i had to stop doing some pushing stuff due to my elbow and after taking some time off that pushing stuff like i was experiencing more cracking in my elbow is that is that purely as a result of not loading it as much yeah, in a, in a situation like that, there's a there's a good chance that that's more got to do, yeah, with joint stiffness, having not simply used that joint as much or the muscles around that joint are quite tight. Um, mm. But again, like that's probably, that highlights that there has been something there. There's been an injury there in the past, but, but the noise is on its own. It's not a problem. You know, like often people hear that noise and make them not want to move. Yeah. Because in reality, probably the best thing to do is to yeah. actually yeah. yeah. And just out of curiosity, you know, what is it causing that noise? You know, for example, if if you just bend down to pick up something and your knees crack, like what is actually causing that noise to happen? So it could be a, a multitude of things. So firstly, it's not precisely known what what that is, right? Um, but there's a few different examples. So like, you know, it could just be some tissue rubbing on other tissue. So you could be talking about the kneecap rubbing um as you bend down so that kneecap does actually need to descend when you bend your knees so that could just be simply the noise or, or that that particular instance is called crepitus but that that's just simply the joints moving um say in jack's elbow that could be tight muscles um often around the elbow you can sometimes feel or hear the tricep tendon flick over one of the bony prominences mm-hmm. um and then your most common example is sort of just like tightness around your lower back if you hear your back crack um often that's just a case of exchanges of gas so pretty much when your body moves you're going to hear um it effectively yeah just the joints moving against themselves with the with the intervertebral discs mm. um trying not to i'm trying to make it as simplistic as possible but it could be sort of any of those components um and that's the thing is why i wouldn't read into it too much if you don't actually have any interesting yeah that's just something i've always been curious about and i'm sure everyone's heard those clicks (laughs) yeah Um, yeah, clicks all the time myself (laughs) so this next question is is more 
I guess, bodybuilding specific, especially for female. So, and I mean, it might apply for guys as well, but we don't really stick our asses out when we pose. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've seen some boys show off their glutes. <laughs> I've seen a few. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, basically it's saying some, some of the, we actually had a few questions of this one, but basically when they do that rear pose where their asses stick out and then they have to arch their lower back and, and do the back pose as well. So yeah, they, this is basically for a female bikini. Yeah, Tiara's, why am I even asking? <laughs> yeah. It's basically a bikini competitor in her rear shot when, you know, she's trying to emphasize, you know, her glutes and her hamstrings and really arch that lower back. Uh, it's pretty much asking how can you prevent lower back pain when trying to get into that pose? So I do know the, the position you're talking about. Um, so what's probably happening is the individual is what we call tilting the pelvis or anteriorly pelvic tilting. So they're lifting the butt and they're tilting the pelvis forward. So what happens when you do that is you're shortening the muscles in the front of your hips and you're shortening the lower back muscles or the erectors. They attach right down over the top of that pelvis. So they're going to shorten up. Um, you would create a little bit of compression in the lower back, but but not much because it's just your body weight. But you're probably just feeling those muscles contract and pull around the base of your spine. Um, what I do tend to find, like if that's happening all the time for you and it's hurting on a regular basis, well, you're probably doing that all the time. You know, that classic poking the ass out posture um, or like your Instagram shots with that sort mm. of position. Um, you know, you this is a bit of a contentious one, but like if you're just always in that position or that pelvically tilted position, you are putting a lot of load on the muscles of your lower back. So if you get into that position just for a short amount of posing, it's it's unlikely that you're going to get pain from just doing like an hour a week of posing or two hours a week of posing. You're probably holding that position doing a bunch of other stuff. And that's where I would say if I've seen like, yeah, bikini athletes and things like that. It's they're doing that when they do everything. So they're doing that when they squat, when they hip thrust, every movement, deadlift. So they're constantly spending time in that position. And it's that accumulation of time in that position that hurts. The position itself is probably not like on its own is not a huge issue. But if you're always in that position doing everything, and that would be a big one when you see squatting, is that that first initiation of movement is to stick the ass out and arch the lower back before they even go anywhere or overarching the lower back when you deadlift. And if you're doing that with everything you do, you can see why those muscles would get tight and sore. Mm -hmm. So then when you try to pose, you're just cranking on that position and holding it for extended periods and it's starting to hurt. And yeah. I've worked with a few posing coaches who have actually recommended, they're like, oh, if you're experiencing pain doing this, you know, pose and being in this position, you can get more used to it by actually laying on a foam roller with it, with the foam roller on your lower back and being in that position. Uh, but I really like to hear your expert opinion on that. Is that actually a good recommendation or is that almost just adding to the problem by being in that position for longer? Or is it just making you accustomed to it? It could go either way. I mean, I'm not a big fan of that exercise, that, that or, uh, foam rolling your lower back, because if you were to – so the, the idea of trying to do that is you want to get more range of motion, so then it would be easier to hold that position. So there'd be a very small amount of people that that would apply to, someone who doesn't have the physical ability to get into that position. 
But almost, I, I never see anyone who is like that. There, there would be a small amount of people, but, but most people and most females in that category have plenty enough mobility to get into that position. Mm-hmm. So if I lie them on a foam roller, we're just simply jamming them further into that position, which they can already get into and they're already getting pain with. So yeah, I would tend to think it's almost always what I originally said, which is you're spending way too much time in that position. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to statically hold a pose, which if you're holding a pose well, it's fatiguing, you know, you're, you're contracting all your muscles and holding a position as hard as you can, you are going to get sore because you're just simply adding more and more and more time in that position. So I would tend to go the opposite line with that. I think, you know, obviously see someone if that is a problem for you, but I think me giving those two examples, you'd probably know which one you would fit into quite comfortably with that. Yeah, fantastic. That's that's a really good answer. Thank you. And I'm glad you were able to clear that up for me. And uh, that actually ties on to another important, like interesting topic is the topic of foam rolling. So Scott, pretty much what is your take on foam rolling? Well, yeah, it's another contentious one, which is a nice uh, choice for the uh, podcast. Um, First of all, it's probably not going to change anything structurally. So you're not going to get like a change in the length of your tissues or your fascia or anything like that. So throw out any sort of idea about getting a structural change to your tissues. It would be similar with massage in this context that if you're foam rolling something, you're probably getting a short-term neurological change. So you're probably reducing the activity of the muscles where you're foam rolling. Is trigger balling the same sort of thing as well? It'd be a similar sort of thing, yeah. So you do get potentially some increased blood flow, but I don't know the validity of of that element. But you're most likely to get just simply a change in neurological um, activity in the muscle. But that that can have some benefits, though. Like let's say you are really tight in a particular area and it's restricting your movement and you go and foam roll that and you're able to now get into the movement like a squat's a good example. In an ideal world, you should just be able to come in and squat without like without any restrictions in range. But if you've got to go and foam roll, you know, your mid-back or stretch your hips or something like that so that you can hit an optimum depth or you can hold a particular um, posture, then I think that's okay to do. Um, it would come back to that question, though, why is that happening? Why are you having to foam roll the same thing week in, week out, over and over and over again? To me, that would suggest that there's something missing in that in that puzzle that you're not working on. Um, but the foam rolling itself, it is just a tool. So as long as you see it as just that on its own, it's okay to do. Um, I would be confident saying that you shouldn't be needing to spend long periods at the gym. For if you're having to do that, there's there's something wrong with yeah. There's a, there's a strength deficit if you're having to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes foam rolling. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That leads us on to our second last question of the day. And this one's from Cameron again. He asked a more personal question. Were you a nerd who started lifting or a lifter who started nerding? <laughs> Cheers, Cameron. Um, I should ask him that question next time. <laughs> well. um, it's a good question. Um, I sort of didn't get into lifting until I was in my 20s. So I guess I think I was like 20, 21 when I sort of got serious about about going to the gym. So I guess you could probably say nerd first, but I was a pretty bad student, I must admit. So, um, I'm not sure if I was really either or, to be honest. Um, but 
I'm gonna go with nerd first. Mm. Yeah, because at least now you seem like someone who really enjoys studying the evidence, and has that kind of progressed as as you become more in, into your career? Yeah, definitely. Like to be honest, I was um, I was a terrible student my first. <laughs> like, I mean, I got all right marks, but I just could not study. I didn't know how to study. I was just, I, I was one. Of, I was probably lucky. I got away with that you know, during high school, not having to do much. Mm. And then, um, yeah, it was a harsh reality check during university to learn how to do that second. But, um, no, I, I, I think finding the passion for what you do does make it a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. I think people can relate to that in university because if you're going through like a three or a four year degree, you know, those first that that first year, especially you start with like those weeder subjects, you know, like the biochem, you know, and and all of those other subjects, right, that sometimes can throw people off a little bit. But as you go through, you can become more specialized and discover what what are you actually interested in? And that's when people start to get really excited. Yeah, I remember doing Psych 1030 in my first semester. <laughs> we did that as well, yeah. Yeah, man, I hated that subject. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, to be honest, at the first the first year of physio, I really did not enjoy it. And mm. I didn't think I was going to finish that degree because it it just didn't have any relevance to me. Like, looking back now, it does. It's, it's mm. super important. Mm. But they just did the theoretical stuff and no practical application. So I found it really hard to see the direction that that degree was going in. Um, lucky I did stick with it because obviously second and third year, I was like, oh, okay, this actually sort of like this stuff. But, um, yeah, it's it's definitely wasn't my forte learning to study in that period. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I remember we did like one, the first anatomy course, and that was like – that's so hard anatomy. Like I just even looking at it back now, I probably would have done I would have done better now, but back then, like you just need to put in so much study to, to at least pass anatomy, I think. But yeah. Especially when you're using real cadavers, which they do at UQ. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's that example of sort of rote learning everything. I think that goes back to that question of of what the student was saying, sort of tips for physio students. Um I learned my anatomy better in the second and third year because I was going to the gym by that stage and exercising. Mm. So I had like a practical application that sort of kept the memory up. But prior to that, it was just a bunch of, yeah, cadavers that had no relevance at all. Yeah. I was doing, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So the final question for the day, which we always ask all of our interviewees, is one interesting thing that you learned this week. And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to exercise or nutrition or just something interesting that you've learned. Interesting. Um, that's a good one. I didn't think about that at all during the podcast. You told me beforehand and I was like, oh, I'll get an hour to think about it. And I didn't do it once. Um, good question. There is, I, I, I think this is because the first thing comes to my mind, but there was an interesting piece of information that I was reading on a um, uh, just online about uh, what causes DOMS. So I guess that's probably relevant to this sort of discussion, but <clears throat> it was just talking about a possible hypothesis, you know, like the the evidence around what exactly you're feeling with DOMS is still sort of undecided. But one of the um, examples they gave was talking about the actual damage to the muscle spindles causing damage to the nerve endings and that that be what you're with DOMS, you know, whereas we used to traditionally think it was more like a lactic acid buildup is less likely the cause now. Um, but that was, yeah, just an interesting little thing. I thought that you might be feeling more of a nerve ending damage as opposed to 
anything else. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really interesting hypothesis. And it, it makes sense because, like you said, when you think of lactate buildup, usually that's quite acute. But considering that we feel DOMS, you know, between like 36, maybe 48 hours after the actual exercise, it makes sense if the nerves have actually been damaged because the lactate yeah. probably would have been gone by then, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah that's no, I'm just thinking. Well, this caught me thinking. <laughs> uh, well, that's probably even out of my realms. That's probably more around like your uh, physiologist's um, breakdown of mm. you know of the the muscle activity there. But no, that's that's sort of what I, I would have thought as well. But um, yeah, I thought it was interesting hypothesis um, that, that you could be potentially be looking at acute nerve damage as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. This episode has been incredibly valuable and I'm sure the listeners would have learned a heck of a lot from it. But before we sign off, please just let everyone know where can they find you if someone wants to get in touch? How can they do that? Yeah, well, great. Uh, thanks for having us on, guys. Um, I've really appreciated it. If you do want to get in contact with me at all, um, check us out. We're called Effectus Physio, which is Effect and then U.S., um, we're located in Tawong, in the uh, Tawong Towers. Um, but if uh, you want to sort of get in touch, ask me any questions, feel free. Just hop on Instagram is probably the easiest way. I'm not the most prolific poster, but I, I will check it regularly. So um, feel free to go online and check us out there. Awesome. And you also do online consultations as well, don't you? I do, yeah. So we definitely do um, online consults as well. I started off more as like a programming element but obviously with the covid stuff going on we're doing more and more telehealth stuff now too mm. yeah guys uh, honestly if if you are like uh, a gym goer or a bodybuilder powerlifter and you're looking for someone who is more sports uh, sports specific for you which i know can be really difficult to find if you go to your regular all sports and stuff um, then i'd highly recommend scott um, that you get in contact with him so guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you did enjoy the podcast, please remember to take a screenshot, uh, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Effectus Physio, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, and we will catch you next week. Great. Thanks again, guys.